The following podcast uses words that I try not to use around my kids. Hello and welcome to episode 290 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Today on the show, we talked with Sydney Montgomery. She is a law school admissions consultant. She particularly helps minority applicants and first-generation college applicants um, that was a great interview. She, we pointed, she's a Harvard law grad, yep. Princeton mm-hmm. undergrad, Harvard law grad. Yeah. Pretty impressive person, an actual lawyer, <laughs> an actual lawyer. We talked a lot about her resources and the advice she has for the people she consults, uh, including ethics. We also dove into a logical reasoning question, had a ton of tangents in there. Hopefully half of them were helpful for you. And then took some questions about the new U.S. News and World Report ranking methodology, which includes graduate debt. Oh, and then we heard about someone who had an LSAC fee waiver denial. What, what's the word? Uh, changed, right? Um, the person appealed. The appeal it. was sustained. The yeah, appeal Will, was sustained. Uh, appealed and uh, won on appeal, which is worth you know a few thousand dollars. So that's great news. Yeah. Then we also had a. Uh, an email from Michael, who's a little bit older, but still finishing a bachelor's and wanted our thoughts on uh, that law school candidacy and LSAT process. Yeah, let's jump in. Sydney, welcome to coming on to the show. We Today we have Sydney Montgomery. You have your own admissions consulting firm, right? That provides law school admissions consulting and college counseling services. So you're not just law school, Okay. And um, you're a graduate of Princeton and Harvard Law School. You're a professional member of the Independent Educational Consultants Association. And I guess you sit on the Graduate Committee and the Ethics Committee. That caught my eye for some reason. I don't know why. Ethics are important. Yes, ethics (laughs) are important. Sure. I was just curious what kind of ethics um, you deal with, but we can talk about that later, if at all. The board, uh, you're also on the board for, of the Institute for Anti-Racist Education and the co-founder of College Equity First. Okay. It didn't make her bio, but she's also a member of the Bay Area Tutoring Summit, which is a group that uh, I helped start 10 years ago um, in the San Francisco Bay Area and has now grown, grown into this huge group of uh, independent tutors and um consultants of a whole bunch of different stripes. That's how I actually uh, met Sydney in the first place. Awesome. Yeah, we've expanded to the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, well, it's Zoom now. So I guess the Bay Area Tutoring Summit is everywhere. But uh, anyway, shout out to those guys. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So Sydney, you're in Maryland. You I am in Maryland. Moved, you moved from the Bay Area. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a lifelong Marylander, actually. I have deep pride for my state. Oh, okay. So, wow. I don't understand how you guys met initially. I actually, um, I connected with another Bay Area Tutoring Summit member through the uh, University of California Irvine Certificate Program in Independent Educational Consulting. And uh, Megan DeVries, she's fantastic at tutoring. Shout out to her. She really thought that it would be a great connection uh, between BATS and I, and I really enjoyed getting to know the members and getting to know a lot of their diversity, equity, inclusion, um, and inclusion and belonging efforts. And so I'm really excited to have been connected with that group. Yeah, great. I want to get right into the ethics stuff. I want to know all the stuff that we're doing wrong. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so I'm a member of a couple of organizations, right? So IECA, the Independent Educational Consultants Association, as well as NACAC, the National Association for College Admission Counseling. And both organizations have a principles of good practice. And so there are there are certain things, there's, you know, a few different sections that we as consultants like to hold ourselves to that kind of distinguish us from the Rick Singer, Varsity Blues type consultants backdoor dealing with admissions. And so, you know, of course, one of the things is that we are not agents of schools. We don't take money from schools. We're independent in that regard. We also actually don't um, allow kind of this kickback between even like tutoring services. So, you know, if I am referring Jack wait, wait, Smith Sydney, to- Sorry, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you for a half second. Did you say that admissions consultants take money from schools? No, <laughs> so I did not. Well, Rick Singer did. Uh, and then, then, then they went some, to jail. Some of them do, <laughs> is what she's saying. Uh, yeah. so, okay. yeah. uh, you made it sound you know. like, like a general practice. Like, oh, we don't do that. You know, there's this whole group no, of people well, over there. That I'm do. sure there's plenty that there do. Yeah, that do, right? And I think that... Yeah, but um, who do you talk to at the school to set that up? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> sure. Okay, good. But um, we actually, uh, IUCA enjoys a really great relationship with uh, schools and organizations. So because of our ethics, standards that we're, you know, we're not doing any kind of weird dealing. We're only working in our area of competency. That's another great thing. So if a student comes to me and she's like, I want to go to college for equestrian, listen, I don't, I don't know anything about horses. I am going to refer her out to a colleague. Uh, someone comes to me and they want med school consulting, also going to refer out to someone else. I only work within my zone. But it's really great because we have these ethics that um, we're able to go to conferences and have these meetings with admission deans and admission directors and really learn from the other side of the desk uh, because they know that we're going to be ethical with the information. And if they tell us, hey, this is not for you to share with families and students, we don't share that with families and students, but it helps us in our advising. The way that the ethics committee really functions is we also don't make claims that incite fear mongering or anxiety or also just are not true. So I'm not going to say I guarantee to get you into Harvard Law School. I don't make guarantees about schools. I absolutely don't. Right. That's a huge ethics thing. And I don't say, hey, you better work with me or you're never going to become a lawyer because uh, there are consultants, you know, everyone can hang up a shingle right now. It's an unlicensed profession, although there is moves to have people take, you know, become a certified educational planner and have that licensing. And I know there is some legislation that actually has been circulating in California about that, probably after the Rick Singer Varsity Blues incident. But, um, you know, I have to be uh, fair in my advertising and fair in what I can say. I can help you. Um, I can make it a smoother process for you, but I cannot guarantee you to get into any schools. And so when there are complaints, though, um, either if people say, hey, this consultant has some unethical messaging or if a parent feels like they were taken advantage of by a consultant, that's when the ethics committee comes in. And we kind of I won't say we arbitrate, but we just give space to kind of figure out what happened and also to maybe give space to figure out like how that consultant can be more ethical in their practice. It's a volunteer organization. So, um, you know, membership is not guaranteed and it's not a right. Uh, but we are, I think there's over 2,500 educational consultants in IECA and NACAC, the National Association for College Admission Counselors has over 23,000 members because their members also include college admissions uh, professionals on that side of the desk, as well as school-based counselors. 
Um, and so there's a lot of um, collegiality that happens there, but we also understand that we want to do what's right for students and we want to just help make the process smoother and make the profession more widely understood and um, respected. A lot of that made sense to me. A lot of it sounded like just also good business practices, right? But one thing that stuck out was you said that sometimes the schools will tell you information that they don't want you to convey to parents or students. And you, you said, oh, we respect that and that maintains our ethics. But there's part of my brain that's saying, wait, is that ethical? I mean, part of your responsibility is to your students and to say, look, you're applying to the school. You shouldn't be applying to the school because of XYZ or whatnot. So I'm just curious what kind of information yeah. <laughs> they're hiding. <laughs> so I mean, I that itself is it, questionable, right? I wouldn't like, call it Don't hiding. tell parents this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I wouldn't call it hiding. I think that sometimes, you know, especially when we are having maybe meetings with uh, lower level admissions officers, for example, they may say something that maybe not as polished as they would say it to a family, right? Um, so it's not that they're hiding anything. It's not that the information is, or, you know, not misleading. If there was something truly important, um, obviously we would, it would be a different conversation. But, you know, sometimes I might say, hey, you know, I can't even give you an example, but it might just be a tongue-in-cheek comment. Or it might be like, you know, we're really worried about this this year. And the way that I might convey that to a parent might be different from how it's said, but I would always give information to my parents and families that I thought would be pertinent to either making their decision or where they're applying. I mean, for example, things like financial health of an institution, I'm always going to tell parents about. Likewise for law school students, right? If that was something that was shared as a concern, it doesn't really come up often where, you know, schools might say, hey, this is information that we're sharing with counselors and this is information that we're sharing with parents. I think the reason why they have sometimes that information bifurcated like that is because we as counselors understand the context of the admissions landscape. You know, both law school and college, we understand the bigger picture. And sometimes because parents and families don't fully understand the picture, they would want that information disseminated through the counselors in a way that the parents and families can best make use of that information. Hmm. Okay. And if you don't have a counselor. Right. So um, I think there's a lot of inequities in in general, as you know, my goal is to help make admissions in general more equitable. The reality of the fact is that I think there was a survey that said most high school seniors spend probably 36 minutes with their public school counselor. And so a lot of these uh, webinars and stuff are available to school counselors, almost all of them. There aren't things that independent consultants get that school counselors don't have access to um, or that pre-law advisors don't have access to at colleges. Uh, but of course, they have a larger caseload and they have a larger, um, they have more things on their plate. And sometimes, you know, that means that they are not able to go to as many of these things. So I think some of the value of having a consultant is that you do get a little bit more personalized attention um, if you go to a large public school. For me, I want to be part of changing the profession and the um I think just the thought that independent educational consultants only serve the wealthy, I really push back on that. Most of my clients are first-gen or minority, either first-gen to college or first-gen to law school. And I think a lot of times we just need to be more flexible in how we're charging or what our pricing payment structure is or the delivery model. Because for me, I mean, my parents both work two jobs and I financially support 
um, my sister's educational expenses and my own medical expenses. And so I get it. Like I was the kid that had three jobs in college and three jobs in law school um, and two jobs most of my adult life. And so for me, I don't want to be completely inaccessible. That's why it's so important to me to give away as much free content as I do and to have, you know, places where students can access information, even if they don't have a lot of funds. And so I think that there are ways that as a profession, I'm just going to say it, we as independent consultants can do better to reach and serve the middle class, uh, the lower income families, and not just in an, oh, I do pro bono and I have five students kind of way, but in a meaningful way that actually increases access. Probably a good spot for you to shout out your various uh, channels. You're talking about giving away free content. Where can people find that? Yeah, so people can find my content. I have a YouTube channel, S. Montgomery Admissions Consulting. I post a new law school video every Monday. And then I have a free Facebook group called Barrier Breakers Law School Edition. It's a free Facebook group uh, primarily targeted to minority and first-gen applicants where I go live every week and answer all of your questions totally for free. Um, I also give free information. I answer uh, questions in like comments and posts. I also am on Instagram at S Montgomery Consulting. You can always find free tips there. And I actually just released a free 60-page guide. It's an essential guide to applying to law school. I put together all of my application guides and really worked to make it uh, quality content for you. That should take you through at least a bare foundation of the important components of your law school admissions process. I do run a free webinar Uh, how to gain control and really maximize your law school application process. And that free webinar goes through how you can focus on timing, how you can focus on your written applications, and you can focus on your letters of recommendation in order to control the parts of your application that you can control. Uh, Because access and information dissemination is really important to me. When we talk about the education gap in this country, we're usually just talking about teachers and students, but we're not talking about resources and information and um, family and support gaps. So that's the part that I really want to shore up. Yeah, there's a big gap there. I mean, I definitely did not spend 36 minutes with my high school counselor. Uh, I spent about four minutes with my high school counselor and she gave me nothing but bad advice. So um, I'm a first generation college student, and I definitely feel that lack of, you know, any kind of help, really. Um, yeah, it's for people that are situated like that. It's really hard. And I think it can also be a really isolating experience. So uh, last year, I launched my law school boot camps, my application boot camps. And so uh, what I love about it is that it allows you to go through the entire law school application process with a cohort of two to four students. And I have found that they have actually done better in the application process in some ways, better even than my private one-on-one students because they're accountability partners to each other because life happens, especially with COVID and you're dealing with maybe job loss or you're dealing with death or you're just dealing with setbacks. And to have a place where you can kind of call your home and a people to call your home has been really exciting. So I'm really glad that I was able to create that space. And then I also created a space to connect my high school students to my law school students and an alumni platform, because that's for, great. for me, it's just important that people can see the future and see their next step. I think you're going to love uh, coming to our black students uh, study group today yeah. at LSAT Demon. I'm really happy that you can stop by. I've, I've seen that happening already. 
in the various communities we've set up for people to meet each other. It's just clear that if they have a couple buddies in the group, they can share resources and commiserate and just kind of keep each other. The whole group is lifting up because because of, you know, somebody asks for help or, some, you know, just the, they're just so good and so helpful to each other. It's amazing Absolutely. what you can achieve in those small groups. Absolutely. Cool. So um, maybe we should transition into um, you have a, a, a tip here about law school personal statements that I would like you to expand upon a little bit. You you wrote that your personal statement does not need to be an exercise in trauma Olympics. Yeah. Which I thought was a very uh, <laughs> pithy way of putting it. You want to talk about that a little bit? I do. I do. So, so many students um, come to me and I think they've gotten the advice that their personal statement needs to just be an adversity statement. Here's what I've overcome in my life. And therefore, here's why I'm a great law school student. And for me, when I help my students write essays, it's a couple of things. One, I want to know why you want to go to law school and why it's the next logical step on your career path. And if at the end of reading your essay or even your application materials as a whole, I'm still not actually convinced that you know what you want to do in the law beyond this amorphous give voice to those that don't have a voice, help my community defend the marginalized, then I am not as convinced. And so one of the things that I say is when you really only focus on adversity, um, not only are you at risk of centering someone else's story, a lot of times you'll tell me about your mom or your dad or your grandma who's really gone through it, but you risk reducing yourself to a single story narrative. So the author Chimamande Ngozi Adichie, actually, she's the author of Americana, um, We Should All Be Feminists, Half a Yellow Sun. She talks about the dangers in her TED Talk of reducing herself to a single story narrative. So I tell my students, you are more than just trauma. You are more than just pain. Admissions committees also want to know about your strengths and your accomplishments and how you've already been working in this field. If you're passionate about food law, maybe you've already been working at a food bank or you've done some policy work around food deserts. Those are the things that I really want to hear about. And so I tell my students that when you're brainstorming, you should make a list, actually. And, you know, I have an organizer of all of the significant moments of your life, both good and bad, personal and professional impacts, accomplishments, adversities, maybe things that relate to the law, and then kind of craft your essay using multiple stories, usually about two, maybe one personal and one professional, but it doesn't have to be that. And really show and paint the picture for me of how you are really moved and driven to pursue law school in that way. I think when you you can mention adversity, it can be part of your story, but I don't think it needs to be the main character, right? It could be like uh, the side character or maybe it makes a cameo appearance. You have a diversity statement in which you can talk about how a unique experience or identity that you have or a multiplicity of identities um, and intersect intersectionality really works to shape your perspective on the world and will shape how you interact in the law school classroom. And I think that is a really important thing that students sometimes confuse with their personal statement. But I like to see you go beyond your adversity because um, you're more than that. And I think students just really feel like they have to tell the biggest sob story um, so they can show that they've overcome all these things and they've become so resilient and that's why they're going to be a great lawyer. But I think I think there's more to that. 
Do they do that because they get bad advice telling them that that's what they should do? I have seen, um, I have seen bad advice on the circling on the internet. Uh, basically, a whole little arc about like start with your obstacle, then how you overcame your obstacle, and then what you learned. And I cringe every time I see that advice on the internet because I'm like, but what about law school and the law? No, okay. I just think that we missed an opportunity there. Well, I would say a lot of like tragedies or adversities that people write about end up making them seem naive too, right? So something that's a challenge to one person can come across as very petty um, to an admissions officer. And so you feel like you've shown this great like insight or learning experience in your life where in reality, it's kind of like, wait, maybe you should have known that before. I was going to say, I have seen that. um, And I always tell students, right, like your feelings are valid. I'm not disrespecting your experiences. Uh, But as a black woman, when I read sometimes some of uh, the well-meaning examples of how they've experienced racism in their life, I'm like, this is not the example that you want. Um, Like, it's bad. Microaggressions are, are forms of racism, right? They're not nothing to be swept under the rug and they do contribute to and eventually lead to overt and racist and even deadly racism. However, centering your personal statement on a microaggression is perhaps not the best thing that you could do right now. It's just bad advocacy. I mean, it's you're you're supposed you're you're applying to be you're auditioning to be a lawyer, right? This is your first legal brief. This is your first bit of advocacy where you're advocating for yourself to get into law school. And you just come with like a plea for sympathy yeah. or some, I mean, even if it wasn't a microaggression, it could be a macroaggression, but I don't care nearly as much about the macroaggression as I care about. And I don't care how you feel afterward. I care what you did afterward. And that's the big difference, right? Like you, you say, I think we're saying the same thing. You say, where's the connection to law school? Can you tie this in? And what you mean is like, well, what did you do? Yeah. Absolutely. After, are you doing something about it? Because what we see, it's probably, I don't know, Ben, would you agree? It's the most common mistake we see in law school personal statements. Yeah. Is to just focus on this big trauma. It's an exercise in trauma Olympics. And then it's like telling all the, you know, this is how I feel. And I now have a passion and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But there's nothing that you've actually done. Yeah. I would have rather seen two really great examples of things that you did in your personal life and things that you did in your professional life, maybe three, two examples of things that you did in your professional life. And then what you're going to do with your law school. And I always say like, also tell them what you're going to do at the school. Is there a clinic you're going to join? Is there uh, a center that you're going to be a part of, but don't just list it, right? Like I want you to research and figure out what is it that they do? Do they write briefs? Do they advocate for clients? Are they, you know, making arguments? Like I I need to know what you plan to do because I also need to know that you don't have a fictitious idea of what it means to be a lawyer, right? I was a family law litigator for a little bit. Um, You know, I, I did practice and I will say even myself, when I made this decision, I decided a long time ago I was going to be a lawyer. I didn't even have a realistic idea fully of what it meant to be a child advocate or uh, to be a family lawyer. But, you know, so often when I hear those phrases of just like, I'm going to, you know, be a voice for the voiceless, I'm like, how? <laughs> Ed- like education, healthcare. <laughs> like, I just, I want to know how. 
you know? And if you can't tell me how, it's like, you're supposed to be persuading me. You're a lawyer. If I'm not persuaded that you know what you're getting into, then I'm not convinced you're going to stay after 1L. And now I'm convinced about my retention rate. And, you know, now I'm looking at your application kind of sideways. Yeah. Actual lawyer, Sydney Montgomery, doesn't care so much about your conclusions. She cares about the facts that support those conclusions. And if you're not bringing any facts, then the lawyer reading the document is like, what is this? It's worthless. There's no, <laughs> there's no evidence here. You just toss it. Right. Immediately. Oh, yeah. I need I need receipts. And I honestly think that <laughs> yeah. a lot of what people put in their personal statement, when I see it really could just be pushed right into a diversity statement. Um, no. Sounds a lot like all the advice we've been giving over the years, Ben. Yeah. Just a quick comment about all of this. Uh, I went to your website, by the way, and then I, I got the notification prompting me to download your 62-page law school admissions (laughs) outline, which I did, or not outline, guide. And then I just scrolled down, and right away you jump right into this, writing your essay and outlining. So if anyone (laughs) wants to dig into this a little bit further, go to S. Montgomery Consulting. I don't know if you have anything else to say about that, but it looks pretty thorough. I am a really big fan of outlining. I was an English major at Princeton, and um, listen, we don't teach people how to write anymore. Um, but don't just write, like, like actually have a plan, outline it. If the outline doesn't make sense, then the essay is not going to make sense. And oftentimes I make people reverse engineer and go back to making an outline if their essay just seems all over the place. So it's not a terrible tip. I'm not an outliner myself and I bet Ben's not an outliner either, but we also scratch our heads. I mean, the, the personal statements that we see are so so bad that that is a basic tip that probably could be implemented in lots of cases well i break it down in that guide i I break down how to outline um so in a a lot of steps um but i also break down your supplemental essays uh your letters of rec um your diversity statement we talk a lot about it there your resume your addenda, um, both for character and fitness and academic. So yeah, there's a lot of information to dig into in the guide. Cool. That's excellent. What other advice do you have for minority applicants? Yeah. First generation college applicants? What yeah, is so the most I, common question? And yeah. I often tell students also that it's really important, and I guess this would go for both college and law school, to know the communities that you'll be surrounding yourself with. So that looks like reaching out to the Black Law Students Association or um, Lambda if you're LGBTQ, um, up, you know, the Asian American Pacific Islander Association, Southeast Asian Students Association. I think so many times students feel like they could only ask admissions to put them in contact with people. And like a lot of times these organizations have websites and they have like dedicated like membership or external vice presidents or people to contact. So I would say take the initiative and make those contacts. I spoke to a Black student at every single school that I applied to, to like really get this guinea. I didn't want to hear just like, oh, we all love each other. Like I wanted to like know what the community was going to be like, because especially at some schools, I mean, at some schools, there's like 18 Black students per class. And at some schools, there's 55 Black students per class. Not to say you could have a great experience at either, but um, you want to know who those people are and what that type is. I went to one school 
And um, there were only 12 black students per class. And I hated, like, more than half of them when I got there. And I was like, okay, well, cool. These are the people I would be going to school with. And this is probably not the place for me. And it was, like, very informative. Um, I would also take the opportunity to reach out to any alumni, if that's possible, either from your own college um, or high school at the colleges that you're looking at. I think that is really pertinent. And then making meaningful relationships with admissions can certainly go a long way, especially for borderline candidates or non-traditional candidates. I know a lot of part-time programs, they have um, availability to kind of talk to students and get to know them. I think when we also talk about this gray zone that we're in right now with waitlist negotiation, if you have been having a conversation with admissions since October, you're probably in a slightly better position than if you're just like, oh, hey, my name's Bill and I, I applied and now I'm going to start making contact with you. They're like, we don't know who you are, Bill. Um, so, you know, just really thinking about the whole process as relational and not transactional, I think can go a long way. Can you elaborate that a little bit more? So I my concern is that students will hear that and they say, OK, I got a former relationship with the admissions committee or someone on the admissions team or, you know, in that that department and it's going to come across as transactional, right? Like Mm -hmm. they're there. It's going to seem fake and not relational and not sincere. What, what character does the, do those conversations take and, and how do they get started? Yeah. So a lot of times it starts with going to an information session. I don't know why so many people don't go to information sessions, but you know, they should. And sometimes the information sessions are actually not super well attended Um, And so there is, depending on the school, they might be on Zoom with webinar or or whatever, you know, back when it was in person. But I like to have my students maybe follow up with the question if they have a genuine question after the information session. Um, we're really connecting to something that they said LSAC has those digital forums now that are online. And those are another great opportunity to actually get to know who the person is. And like also ask questions. So I think sometimes we just... Uh, only focus on the person as being a symbol of the school and like not a person. And so I would love to know maybe what made them choose that school if they're an alum or what's their best thing about working there or how is their day going today? I don't know, something simple, even at the forums, right? They're talking to a lot of people, they might be tired. And then actually listening to the response and not just saying, cool, I asked them a question about themselves, checking it off the box. I think that there are a lot of, not every admission professional is is open to or has the time, but I have seen a lot of admission professionals really get to know a lot of my students in a way that is is genuine and they're checking up. I know that I, um, one of my mentors is an admissions uh, director at a school and we, we just connected during the application process um, and he was so lovely. And I went and toured and and he showed me around and and he was like, you're probably not coming here. And I was like, what what do you mean? He was like, no, you're probably going somewhere else. But these are things that you should be looking at. And we just stayed in contact. I let him know where I went to school. I, you know, shot him an update email when I was in, you know, 1L, like maybe after like Christmas break or whatever. Um, And we're still friends. Right. And that's what I mean about relational. Obviously, the application process itself is shorter, but I wasn't looking at it as I'm only talking to this man so I can get into the school. But it's, hey, this is a person in the legal world, which, uh, you know, could be beneficial or could just help me or maybe I could help him. And it's just good to have these people around in your life. You never know. 
And by the way, that legal world is extraordinarily small. I mean, super small. <laughs> super small. <laughs> you think of it right now as an applicant, and it's this big unknown black box that's huge and has tons of attorneys in it. But the reality is, uh, it's a very, very small world, and most people know each other. And having those sort of connections can be immensely valuable. Not only getting into the school that uh, may have the officer, uh, you know, um, that you're talking to, but I mean, that's amazing that you have this connection now. I, I can't imagine that won't be beneficial down the road. Yeah, I love meeting new people just for the joy of meeting new people. And I think if students approach how they go about connecting with admissions like that, like this is a whole person and they are a fantastic human that I could get to con get to know. And, you know, maybe it'll also be beneficial to me. Maybe I will be beneficial to them. I think that the conversations will be more genuine. And sometimes the little gems that you hear, like I, when you, one of your questions you said was, you know, what, what brought you to this school? Um, I, I can see their answer being concocted in some way to right, sell the school. But at the same time, if you can get that conversation started, then you can learn random things about a school that may attract you to it or deter you or just the application process in general. I mean, the bottom line is that these people have information, lots of information that you don't have. So the more conversations that you have, the more opportunities you have to get exposed to information that may just be gloss again, but also could be helpful and make you a better applicant. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, ben, you ready to wrap it up there? Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Sydney. If people want to find you again, what's the best way? Yeah, the best way. Thank you also so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. The best way for students to contact me is to, they can email me info at smontgomeryconsulting.com or they can go on my website, www.s, S as in Sam, uh, smontgomeryconsulting.com. And there you'll be able to find all the different ways that you can work with me or you can find all of the ways that you can get uh, content for free. And so I'd love to have uh, you in my orbit. I'd love to connect you with other students uh, that are going through the process just like you. Thank you. That's excellent. Yeah, super happy to have you on, Sydney. Uh, I'll see you in about an hour yeah. for our Zoom group. I'll see cool. you in an hour. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Bye. All righty. Looks like we have a logical reasoning question. Yeah, let's do this. Uh, this is test 65, section 4, question 25. And we have two speakers here. Litsina starts with because futuristic science fiction does not need to represent current social realities, its writers can envisage radically new social arrangements. Ben, do you read any sci-fi? <laughs> uh, I did at one point, but not recently. Any favorites? Uh, I'm trying to remember what they're called. They're all about um, this AI that was discovered in the future and... It's, its name was Skippy. I don't remember the name of the series. Skippy. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I don't think I've... Okay. You have to find it. Um, How about you? I haven't... Yeah, I love sci-fi. Um, <clears throat> specifically, I love um, this guy, Robert Heinlein, okay. um, who wrote in like the 50s. And I think if you dig too much into his personal background, there's some problematic shit in there. But uh, <laughs> I really love his books. So... Um, 
Anyway, I have read a lot of sci-fi. When I read this, because futuristic science fiction does not need to represent current social realities, its writers can envisage radically new social arrangements. I immediately actually thought of some of the Heinlein that I've read. It is futuristic science fiction, and it does break from current social realities Hmm. in a lot of ways. I mean, he was, you know, very forward thinking, for example, women in power, like you read his books and, you know, you'll have a woman president of the galactic whatever. And he was writing this in 1950, Hmm. which was, you know, (laughs) a big break from the current uh, social arrangement. So anyway, I, I... I'm allowed to bring in that outside information, that outside knowledge, right? It, as to the extent that it helps me understand what Lucina is saying, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not meant to like shut off my entire life experience, right? I've, I, I'm I'm allowed to go. Oh yeah, uh, I guess you're right. They they do sometimes do this. Yeah. In futuristic sci-fi. Yeah. By the way, I looked up the book. It's Ex- Expeditionary Force by Craig Allen Allenson. And, nice. um, and he's got a bunch of series, but yeah, it's kind of similar actually. Uh, aliens end up coming and, you know, yeah, that dramatically changes the social realities. Uh, we're now in the middle of the food chain, if not on the bottom of the food chain of a big galactic war. So that's awesome. I mean, I think everybody should check out that book I, and by check out, I mean, literally, check out uh i just got a library card recently and i've been going nuts ben on the library i mean i go to the library website i can request any book i want Mm -hmm. they deliver it to my local branch and send me an email when it's ready to pick up i go in there and i walk out with a stack of free books i mean it's (laughs) it's really incredible yeah The, the library is it's just so awesome and People are like, you know, in classes, people are like, Nathan, why are you, why, why do, how come it's, how come these logical reasoning and reading comp passages come to you so easily? And it's like, the answer is, because I've read more books than you have. Like fairly, fairly straightforward. It, it's, you know, like I've, I mean, I am 45, which makes it pretty easy for me to have read more books than you when you're 25. Give it 20 but, years and you'll be good. Yeah. But I mean, for real, like, I think you should pick up our shitty science fiction recommendations. You know, I, I think people turn up their nose at that and go, no, well, the, you know, I should read The Economist or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or or at no. least anything that interests you, right? Enough to draw you in and get you consuming more Turn content. Turn the pages. Yeah. How do you want to spend your time? Like mulling over your relationships with people you don't give a fuck about? Or, sorry, not to say that all relationships <laughs> should be ignored. I'm just saying like a lot of times, you know, you're concerned about like some random person at like school that you don't really care about. Or do you want to be consuming new information? Well, Social media facilitates that, right? Like just endlessly scrolling Instagram (laughs) or Facebook or whatever it is. Yeah. And looking at your friends' vacation photos, engagement photos, wedding photos, baby photos, Mm -hmm. you know, and just like constantly comparing yourself to other people. Yeah. Such a huge waste of time. And it's not as good or or like me. You know, I uh, got a new phone not too long ago and I'd never installed Twitter. 
And I'm so happy I didn't. Mm. I, it's just, it's my life is so much better without that bullshit. Yeah. I don't, you don't need to be horror scrolling, doom scrolling, as people call it, you know, just reading all the headlines about all of the tragedy happening all around the world. Fuck that. Read a sci fi book that keeps you turning the pages. Mm-hmm. You're going to be doing so much more for your LSAT skills and your reading skills for law school and beyond. And also, don't underestimate, you know, you, you always point out how much I consume maybe. I hate the name, but the self-help genre, right? Uh, although, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> although I you do, do <laughs> um, it, it's actually I would I would say it's it's a more accurate picture to say I consume more of in the scientific genre. So I'm much more interested right. in social science, um, things like that. Uh, I'm I'm not so interested in someone's random theory about rah rah rah. This is what we're gonna do to help you feel better. You're uh, not reading Tony Robbins. You're no. reading like books from scientists or you know, yeah, some sort of academic presenting new interesting research that you can draw some conclusions from. Yes, and and despite the fact yes. that I love that kind of content, don't underestimate. So to your point about scientific or non, you know, fictional sci-fi novels from the future, don't underestimate the power of story to convey universal themes that can educate you on these topics in ways that you would never predict. I mean, my kids, all they listen to are these, you know, fictional stories, um, Harry Potter, uh, like the Percy Jackson stuff, so, you know, and, and a bunch of other things like that. Oh, they just love that kind of stuff. But it brings up so many random things that then they talk about. And it's like, yeah. It's about people. Yeah. It's about society. It's about new, radically new social arrangements mm-hmm. is what that shit is actually about. Yeah. It's not about, the, I mean, sure, there's the laser beams and the tractor beams and the Death Star and whatever, but that's not really what it's about. No. What it's really about is the, you know, epic journey and human nature and, and all that. Yeah. Um, I love sci-fi. I love fantasy these days. I read two short Stephen King novels in the last two days. Yeah. For real. I, like I got back into the library and wow. started just grabbing everything off the shelf. Yeah. And it's like, I found myself, you know, not turning on my Xbox and certainly not going through social media for no reason. And instead, I'm just like turning pages. I got my coffee and I'm just turning pages. And next thing you know, I'm done. And it's like, man, that is working out your brain. Yeah. You want to be serious about like changing the world in law school? I think you should start by changing your habits in your own personal life. And boy, delete all of your social media, man, that shit is not helping you. And TV too, you know, Netflix is great. Amazon prime is great. There's, there's some stuff that I still watch from time to time, but that should not be the bulk of your media diet. Yeah. You got to read books. Yep. It's like, there's two types of people in the world. There's the people that read books and there's the people that don't, (laughs) I don't care what you read. I just want you to read. It just, it just makes an extremely big difference in your whole life. Yeah. Uh, sorry for that lecture, but, you know, Lucina <laughs> <laughs> started talking about sci-fi and I got excited. Yeah. So 
again, Litsina has said, because futuristic sci-fi does not need to represent current social realities, its writers can envisage, which means, you know, imagine, mm-hmm. radically new social arrangements. Okay. Thus. Okay, so that was a, a premise, basically, and here comes a conclusion. Thus, sci-fi has the potential to be a richer source of social criticism than is conventional fiction. The first thing I noticed there is that they're bringing up new shit in their conclusion. Yeah. Which you're just not allowed to bring up new shit in your conclusion. That's like on the LSAT 10 commandments. Yeah. I would say if, (laughs) if there is any such flaw (coughs) that we want people to remember other than necessary versus sufficient, maybe confusing necessary for sufficient and confusing correlation for causation, it's probably just bringing up new shit because even in those two <laughs> in examples, your conclusion yeah specifically in your, in your conclusion, conclusion yes of course in you're your not conclusion. thou shalt not bring up new shit in your conclusion yeah that doesn't work it doesn't work and it, it subsumes so many flaws right essentially that's what they're doing even when you go from correlation to causation you're you were talking about correlation and now you're bringing up new shit which is a causal causation relation. yep is new shit exactly yeah you know what i've never really articulated it this way before and if I, now when I think about it, like, I think I've seen LSAC describe it as unwarranted assumption mm. or something like that. Mm. But it's such a more straightforward way to communicate it, to just say, don't bring up new shit. In your conclusion. Yep. In, in your conclusion. Yep. <laughs> that is not going to work. <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to grant you all of your premises. Yep. So you can bring up as much new shit as you want yeah. in your premises. Mm-hmm. But when you get to the conclusion, I want no new shit in there. Yep. Otherwise, I'm going to immediately attack. And so what would you say here, Ben, if you were just going to like jump all over Litsina? Because she's committed. Yeah, the LSATs. That's probably a bigger deal, actually, than confusing sufficient for necessary. That would cover a ton of flaws. Yeah. So what are you going to do then? I mean, she's just teed herself up for it, right? You get to just now go to town. What are you going to say? Well, okay. so she says in her conclusion that. Uh, science fiction has the futuristic science fiction has the potential to be a richer source of social criticism. Well, first of all, I don't know anything about social criticism. So I'm like, uh, mm. what what makes for good social criticism? Something where you can radically envision a new social arrangement? Is that how you go about criticizing um, social criticism, right? Or criticizing yeah. social structures? Well, or... I don't know. Do you actually go after the structures that are in place? I, I have no clue. Right. This it's, is like all she, new. She's opened herself up to an attack where you could just use her own evidence exactly against her. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Wait, you, you, Oh, you want rich social criticism, but you think sci-fi with its radically new social arrangements is a better source than, actually talking about the social arrangements that we literally have (laughs) you know like you want to be criticizing a diff not reality yeah is what you're saying yeah i mean she's just wide open for like you know she boy as soon as the other side starts talking she's gonna be struggling here she also brings up other new shit by comparing it to conventional conventional fiction. fiction. What what do we know about conventional fiction? Uh, can they not also envision radically new social arrangements? Uh, exactly. Yeah. 
I mean, you know, conventional fiction like The Color Purple or like To Kill a Mockingbird? Wait, (laughs) like Huck Finn? Wait a second. So you're saying that those are not rich sources of social criticism? Yeah. Really? And and if, by the way, for our listeners who are taking issue with the first sentence and saying, hey, but the first sentence said that they could envision radically new social arrangements because it's futuristic science fiction and does not need to represent current social realities. Well, <laughs> you're, you're confusing sufficient for necessary, right? Just because um, I, you know, someone can make money through basketball doesn't mean that they someone else can't make money through stock trading, right? Like Yeah. So don't think that conventional fiction can't also do this. Yeah, there's there's two different bits of new shit here in the conclusion. Mm-hmm. Where social criticism, man, we could go off for hours on this. Mm-hmm. Why do we think that we need radically new social realities in order to do social criticism? Two, where did you ever? Where did you ever say that conventional fiction doesn't do a good job of social criticism? Yeah. Now I'm not an idiot, right? Like we we do understand what Lucina is saying, and in fact, I maybe tend to agree with her. Not necessarily her conclusion. If she had reached the conclusion, thus it has the potential to be a rich source of social criticism. Yes. Alongside conventional fiction, you know, I would have been like. Well, sure. I mean, you know, if you have a, uh, I'm just thinking of some radically new, like a Heinlein-esque radically new social reality would be, you know, three men and two women who are all married to each other and, you know, whatever. That's not possible? Oh. (laughs) Yeah. um, Some states maybe, but it's, you know that's a thing that you can talk about in futuristic sci-fi because you're not like beholden to today's social realities. Yeah. And I can see how that might be a rich source of social criticism. Sure. Look how happy they are. But she, (laughs) she compared it, you know, she said a richer source of social criticism than is conventional fiction, which she didn't even present any evidence about. So she's in trouble here. This is a shitty argument. Sure. Should I read Priscilla? All right. Priscilla. Yeah. Okay. So this is the other, uh, this is the rebuttal, or at least Priscilla's response. Priscilla says, that futuristic science fiction writers more skillfully envisage radically new technologies. Wait, what? More skillfully envisage radically new technologies than new social arrangements shows how writers' imaginations are constrained by current realities. Okay, so this sentence is awkwardly written, but it's basically saying, in my mind, two things. One, um, futuristic futuristic science fiction writers apparently more skillfully envision radical... I'm going to just use a better word there. Envision radically new technologies. They do that better than they envision um, new social arrangements, right? And that's kind of embedded in this sentence. And apparently that, according to Priscilla, shows how their imaginations are pretty constrained, actually, by current, apparently, social realities. And so maybe Priscilla is going to go on and say that they don't 
envision new social arrangements as much as the first person thinks? I don't know. Right. Yeah, no. I mean, I think Priscilla already got there and said, well, but they don't really do this very well. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think we could take a little sidebar here to offer a writing tip yeah. to Priscilla yeah. and to every one of our listeners. Yeah. Literally, yes, you. I'm talking to you right now. Yeah. <laughs> listener, don't look to your neighbor. Your sentences are... T- <laughs> Your sentences are too damn long. Yep. You know, look to your left, look to your right. All of y'all, including you, (laughs) use sentences that are too long. This could have been two sentences. It should have started with but, Mm -hmm. by the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, if Priscilla would have said, but futuristic science fiction writers more skillfully envision radically new technologies than new social arrangements. Mm -hmm. Period. This shows. Mm Mm-hmm. This shows that writers' imaginations are constrained by current realities. Then you would really understand what the hell Priscilla is saying. Yeah. But she started her sentence with that. And it was one sentence instead of two. And then it's a bitch to understand what Priscilla is even saying. Uh, That's my writing tip of the day. Number one writing tip. There's only one commandment, maybe, in my writing tips, Mm. which is, Use shorter sentences. Yeah. There's no shame in making your ideas clearer. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Periods are good. Short sentences are easy to read. You want it to be easy to read. You do not want it to be impossible to read. Sorry. One more Um, sidebar here, by the way. When you go to law school, you're actually going to be pulled. We just talked about how social media pulls us away from actually good books and good material. Well, law school itself is going to pull you away from good writing because you're going to read a lot of shitty writing and you're going to think to be a good lawyer, I need to sound like all these past cases, which were verbose and um, (laughs) obsessed with words that don't hit the soul like plain English, right? And so you can ignore those. You need to know them. You need to know what they're saying, but then you need to use plain English to make your point. Yeah, statutes and regulations, which are even worse because they were written by committees of lawyers and, you know, love using 10 semicolons in the same sentence. <laughs> that That is very, that is bad writing. Yeah, it, it is such a shame, actually. I, I would, the vast majority of everything I read in law school was terrible, terribly written. Vast majority. Agreed. Yeah. 90, not 99%. Yeah. Terribly written, including like the restatements. Sure. The restatements are, are, you know, supposed to be some really smart scholars got together and did a survey of contract law in the United States and wrote a restatement of, Hey, here's what all of the common law, here's the common law that's been established. And Here's what we think is like, here's how this should be. You know, we we think if people decide that they're going to follow the restatement, here's what, here's how they would apply this law. But it's, again, it's written by committee. So it's just like this horrible multi-clause, multi-part, you know, just really a hundred words in a sentence. Well, it stems Not from what we're looking for. Yeah, it stems from the the lack of respect for writing as a challenge in and of itself, right? It's like people who are are super interested in contract law and maybe brilliant at it, but they think that that alone qualifies them to write about contract law. Yeah. And it doesn't, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think another part of it is that what they're doing is they're actually writing computer code. Yeah. 
right? They're, they're, <clears throat> which a computer doesn't give a shit. As long as it's like the syntax is correct, the computer, it, the whole program could be one sentence, mm-hmm. right? The computer's smart enough to parse it. Yeah. But a human reader isn't. And they should, you know, it'd be nice if they would write it for a human reader instead of writing it for a uh, law machine. Yeah. But so, so anyway, <laughs> anyway, Priscilla, what she was trying to say is that apparently um, futuristic science fiction writers are better at writing or envisioning new technologies than new social arrangements. And for that, apparently, according to Priscilla, shows us how their imag- imaginations are pretty constrained. Um, by current realities, and they can't really see beyond what's right in front of them. So Priscilla doesn't argue that futuristic science fiction does not need to represent current social realities. Priscilla does not argue that futuristic sci-fi writers can envisage radically new social arrangements. She just says, yeah, but they don't do that nearly as skillfully as they uh, envisage the, the new technologies. Yeah. You know, the laser beams and the warp drives and all that shit, they're good at that. <laughs> they're actually, according to Priscilla, not as good, uh, less skillful at envisaging these uh, new social arrangements. Yeah. So she's not explicitly dis- disagreeing with Latina's premises, mm-hmm. but she's sort of sidestepping them, right? By saying, yeah, yeah, they could. They just don't do it very well. They don't do it very well. And that kind of, that does come in between the first person's premise and her conclusion, right? Because now it's like, well, maybe it's not a richer source of social criticism if you assume that you do need to envision radically new social arrangements. Right. I mean, it, Priscilla, her first sentence could have been, but they're not very good at that. Yep. She continues, because of this limitation their inability to see beyond current social realities, the most effective social criticism results from faithfully presenting the current social realities for critical examination, as happens in conventional Mm. fiction. Okay, so that's a direct um, contradiction of... How do you say that first person's name? Lutzina. Lutzina. Lutzina's conclusion. So they clearly disagree about what source of uh, fiction is better. And we predicted it because Lucina left herself wide open to that attack. She brought up new shit of social criticism and conventional fiction. And Priscilla just turned on that fastball. Yep. I mean, that's the, <laughs> that was, that one was right down the pipe and Priscilla put it out of the yard. Yep. Right. I mean, she's just like, well, but wait a second, they don't do that very well. And the most effective social criticism comes from faithfully presenting current realities like they do in conventional fiction. Yep. I mean, just devastating um, retort there from Priscilla. Yeah. Uh, The question says, Lucina and Priscilla disagree with each other about whether, and uh, I mean, I'm going to make a prediction here. It's just whether or not... conventional fiction or uh, futuristic science fiction is better at criticizing social It's useful generally on a disagree question or an agree question. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's useful to think about, are they arguing about evidence or are they arguing about the conclusion or are they arguing about both of those things? 
And here, I, I don't see Priscilla explicitly disagreeing with any of Lucina's premises. Yeah, that's a very I good see point. Priscilla, yeah. I see Priscilla providing new evidence. And, you know, this could have been a, a method question, right? A reasoning question. Mm-hmm. But they could have easily just said, what, what was the strategy of argumentation employed by Priscilla? And in which case it's really critical that you recognize, well, she's not really arguing about the, the evidence. Yeah. She did provide new evidence and she definitely disagreed with Lutzina's conclusion. Yeah. And I think the key word here is Lutzina's use of the word can, right? She said they can envisage radically new social arrangements um, as opposed to saying that they actually do that often. Right. And so it, exactly. make, it makes it easy she, for Priscilla to say, yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> I agree maybe that they can, but I don't think they do. It's a beautiful style of argumentation that you never see on, you know, news television. Hmm. I don't care if you're watching MSNBC or CNN or Fox. Hmm. Nobody there is like it, what they do is a gotcha. He, he said, she said, just argue with every word out of every opponent's mouth. Right. Sure. We got the blue team and the red team and they just call each other liars constantly. Yep. <clears throat> That's not, this is a more civilized form of combat. Yeah. Priscilla has said she just neatly sidestepped. She said, sure. I mean, she didn't even have to say it. She just said, well, Yeah. <clears throat> They can do that, but they don't do it very well. Also, you brought up new shit in your conclusion that I'm going to attack specifically. Yep. Sorry. uh, Last thing you said, it's important to decide whether they're disagreeing about the conclusion, about the evidence or about both. And I'm glad you said that because so many people reflexively assume that they're going to disagree about their conclusion. And, Although they certainly can, and they did here, they don't have to that often. Or they reflexively assume that if you did, if you do disagree on the conclusion, then you have to also disagree on the evidence. Yes, mm-hmm. because that's the type of cable news arguing or politicians arguing that we see. Yep, and that's not what happened here. Priscilla didn't argue with any of Lucina's evidence. She just said, "Hey, I've got other evidence that we need to talk about." And then I'm going to disagree explicitly with your conclusion, but not the evidence. So sometimes they're going to disagree on just the evidence and arrive at the same conclusion. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're going to disagree on the conclusion, but not the evidence like they did here. Other times they are going to disagree with the evidence and then thereby reach a different conclusion. Yeah. All right. So answer A says some science fiction writers have succeeded in envisioning Envisaging, I can't even say it. Why can't I even say it? <laughs> envisaging, envisaging, in, like vision. Thank you, thank you. Envisaging, yeah. mm-hmm. convincing, radically new social arrangements. Arrangements. Well, <laughs> Lucina would clearly agree with this. I don't know. Yep. I mean, succeeded. Yes. Um, and Priscilla might even agree with this. Might say yes. Some have done it. It's happened at least once. I'm not saying that it never happens. I'm just saying. Doesn't happen very often, so I would say she this doesn't is out. have to disagree. Yeah, we're looking for one where the evidence on the page 
proves that one of the speakers would say yes to this statement or not would say, but has said yes to the statement and the other speaker has said no. I'm willing to grant that Lucina says yes to A, but I'm not willing to grant that Priscilla says no to A. Mm -hmm. Priscilla could easily say, well, yeah, of course we've got Robert Heinlein or whoever, like we've got a writer who did this successfully. Sure. But in general, they don't. (laughs) I still disagree with your conclusion because most of them do this less skillfully and conventional fiction, you know, and the, the new evidence, which was the most effective social criticism results from faithfully presenting the current social realities. Therefore conventional fiction is actually better. Cool. She doesn't have to disagree with A. Doesn't have to disagree with A. Let's keep it there. B, writers of conventional fiction are more skillful than our writers of futuristic scientific fiction, science Mm. fiction. Yeah, it's just, it's going way too broad. (laughs) We're talking about their abilities to skillfully envisage radically new technologies or arrangements or things like that. This is just like skillful, period. And we don't know. So I would say, I don't know for either one of these. Exactly. Because Lucina never even mentioned skillfulness. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't have to disagree with B necessarily. Sure. Or, uh, you know, I mean, I think she could agree that writers of conventional fiction are more skillful generally. She could be like, well, yeah, it's actually easier to write sci-fi. Or easier to write conve- conventional fiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Either way. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. And uh, Priscilla could actually do the same thing because mm-hmm. more skillful generally is just way too broad. They're, they're arguing about a narrower issue. Yeah. Cool. C futuristic science fiction has more promise as a source of social criticism than does conventional fiction. Um, okay. (laughs) This is what, uh, Lucina was saying in her conclusion. And this is the opposite. Promise was never... I didn't like C because of the word promise. <laughs> I didn't even think twice about that word. Um, right. It's That's because you read a lot. It just means better. <laughs> yeah. Well, promise and potential mean the same thing. Yeah. If you have a, a prospect, you know, <clears throat> you're uh, scouting out your buddies for a 40 and over basketball league, mm-hmm. and you've got a buddy who's 6'6", six, six, you're like, well, this show's pr- never played basketball before, but uh, the height shows promise mm-hmm. or the height shows, shows potential. potential. Yeah. It means the same shit. Read lots of books, y'all, and you won't stumble. I, I guarantee you that if I was teaching this in class, there would be like 5% of the class, which was like, oh, I couldn't pick it because of promise. Oh, wow. Well, that that just really shows the problem that people have with like zeroing in on keywords. Word, word matching. Yeah. I was looking for potential, you know, I, I I was looking for... And Richard, where's Richard? A, a word that they both said. Yeah. Oof. Like the correct answer had to say envisage. Because they both said envisage is definitely wrong. Yeah, this is really bad. By the way, just yesterday, I don't know why this happened yesterday. I'm sorry this is such a tangent and it's going to seem kind of petty on some <laughs> level. But I saw two... <laughs> Great. I can't wait. <laughs> two of our like respect respectable competitors. I won't name them, but, um, you know, there's a bunch of competitors out there 
Uh, but in my mind, I still have a hierarchy of who like gives generally better advice <laughs> for the LSAT and those who give worse advice. Yeah. And I was shocked by, I, I started watching this video on YouTube and I was shocked by the advice that this, this uh, one a competitor was giving because I thought, hey, okay, well, this guy at least gives generally good advice. And he was talking to, and he just started obsessing about the word clearly. He's like, oh, it's so great that they use the word clearly here to indicate the conclusion. And I'm like, whoa, clearly has been used to indicate premises, unlike a word like thus, which clearly indicates some sort of conclusion. The word clearly has no such meaning, not on the test and not in the dictionary. It just is an emphatic word. Yeah. And I was, I just was dumbstruck it, by how, how much he was obsessing about it, how much he was talking about it, and it totally undercut my faith in his hierarchy. His hierarchy dropped, his rank in my, like... <laughs> the power ranking yes, of, of our competitors. Yeah, of, like, respectable They're... competitors, right? Like, I'm not saying his, his revenue will drop. I mean, people don't really know. They probably eat that stuff up and love it, right? But anyways. Oh, people do eat up pithy, bad tips. And here's the other one. Um, oh, I yeah. have certain... <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Well, I have certainly said before that clearly gets my attention. Yeah. Clear clear you know, when people say clearly, yeah. I do it myself all the time. I'm trying to force an idea on you sure. and so I say clearly. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't actually have any any logical um it doesn't have any logical power. Yeah. And I could use the word clearly in I could use the word clearly in all of my premises yep. if I wanted and not my conclusion. Yep. And it wouldn't change the argument at all. Yep. So uh, it's kind of a problem. But, you know, people walk away from that and they're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I know that what that means now. Oh, if I see clearly, then that's the conclusion. <laughs> that's the conclusion. I mean, and it, probably it, the main conclusion. It, honestly, it might be 90% of the time. I, I don't think it is, though. I, I will say, because I, I, you know me, I've been a lot more obsessed with these words than you have. And, and so there are some where I feel like I can say with confidence, um, yeah, I'm going to say that's more like 60 I don't know. I mean, I okay. haven't done a study, but even if it's ninety percent, it's still a bad tip. It's still a bad tip. Yeah, uh, it's not okay to miss one out of ten questions that include <laughs> the word clearly just because some idiot told you. Sorry, I shouldn't say idiot. Some um, poorly less, informed, less respectable than they were yesterday. Instructor. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Anyways, I, I know people hate it when we hammer on these pe things. What was the other one? <laughs> that's why I'm keeping them name free. Um, anonymous. Anyways, the other one was this idea of skipping and coming back. I, th I thought that had been put to bed like a decade ago. Ugh. And they're like, and, and you know, people are chiming in. They're like, oh, it's so good to skip and come back because Bullshit. now. Oh my God. I'm like, what? Do you're your going to invest work. that time into a question? Then you're going to skip with confidence because you know you have the time to come back. I mean, anyone who's skipping is also not finishing. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, okay. I'm going to make an analogy to something that happened to me when I was a child, yeah. which uh, is inherently potentially bullshit. Okay. Okay. But I distinctly remember carrying shit. I think we were either loading firewood or moving boxes. I can't remember exactly what it was that we were carrying. I was a little kid. I was helping my dad with some project. Okay. Yeah. And we had to move a bunch of items from position A to position B. Okay. <laughs> you didn't say that as and, a kid, did you? Oh, I got to take this from position A to position B. <laughs> 
No, I did not. But what I did do was I picked up said box hmm. and I moved it like halfway to the target location and put it down. And then I was going to go get another box and also move it halfway. I was going to do like a staging. Ah, yeah. And then I was going to move the boxes to the final destination. And my dad was just like, hey, this job is going to be a lot easier if you don't have to put that box down and then pick it back up again unnecessarily. Carry it all the way to the target location. And I think about that every time I think about somebody skipping questions on the LSAT and coming back. Because it's like you did part of the work, but now you're going to put it down, leave, go do some other work, then come back to this one where then you have to pick it back up again. It's analogies are inherently bullshit, but that one's not. That one's good. Well, you remember a few episodes ago, we were talking about your unresolved childhood hurts. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh So is this, that might've been it. Yeah. And this is the origin of your advice. So when people, God damn it, dad, (laughs) making me carry the box all the way. You (laughs) fucking finished that question. (laughs) (laughs) I had to. Okay, cool. Well, that's good advice. So they're also telling people to skip and come back. Yeah. It was really bizarre. It was just bizarre. I mean, again, just not, who has time for that? (sighs) And, and we'll see. And and they double down on it, right? They're like, they're just lauded so much. They're like, this is, when I, you know, if you, you're, it's a time sink, if you let yourself get, you know, wrapped into it, which is true. I mean, there is a time when you have to, to throw in the flag, but it's very rare and it's not because you're going to come back. It's just like, it's a fiction that, uh, I don't know, doesn't do anyone any good. You need to get as close as you're going to get to the correct answer. Pick an answer forget about it and move on. Yep. Do your work. I'm not saying you have to have a hundred percent accuracy, but on that one out of, you know, maybe there's one question in the first 10, Yep. which gives you trouble and you have to reread it and you're down, you know, maybe you narrow it down to two answers, which is not, not normally very good. Right. If I know, if I have two answers, I'm in trouble. Sure. I should have zero answers more often than I have two answers, Mm -hmm. but either way you get stuck. Maybe you don't like any of the answers. Maybe you think two of the answers are good. Get as close as you're going to get in a reasonable. I I don't want to say amount of time because then people will be like, well, how much time is that? Is it 95 seconds or 102 seconds? You know, it's not like, it's not about that. Do I feel like I'm still making progress towards solving the question or not? Mm Mm-hmm. If I don't feel like I'm making progress towards solving the question, then I'm going to pick something and move on. Yeah. I'll probably get it right 80% of the time. Yeah. But that's okay. I'm going to move on. What I'm not going to do is give myself permission to just not finish my work. I'm not going to just be like, I'll flag this one and come back to it. What? You're working on it now. Yeah. The bigger problem is now finish, finish your work. <laughs> people are going to stop a lot more questions than they should and could have gotten right with well, 30 more seconds. It, it's an earlier question in the section. Yeah. So it's, it's almost guaranteed to be easier than some of the stuff you're going to see later. Plus if you don't finish it now, you're going to be like 1% of your brain is left behind. Mm-hmm. 
still thinking about that question. Yeah. I don't believe you if you think that's not the case. I, I, I just don't. I, I think you can't help it. Your subconscious is not really under your control all the time. And so, you know, you just decide, oh, well, I don't know, one of these, I'll, I'll come back to it. Well, now you've got this do loop in your head of like, well, don't forget that you have to go back and answer oh, question 11. Geez. Don't, you know, like, make sure you save enough time. You better hurry on this one, too. Oh, maybe you better just flag this one, too. Because we got to go back. Now we got to go back and do number 11 and number 13. It's, it's garbage. I don't, nobody who's good at the LSAT does it that way. Yep. Not, not in my experience. No. It, it, you need to end your relationship with that question. Like you end all relationships. <laughs> yeah. You say we're good and you move on. <laughs> right. Flagging questions is just this unresolved baggage. Yeah. You're, you're now damaged goods because you're carrying along all of the, all of this bad relationships that you had with number 11 yep. and number 13 mm-hmm. is going to prevent oh you gosh. from having that fulfilling, uh. meaningful connection with number 17. What's your status? It's complicated? No, it's not complicated. It's either, here's my answer. Now get the fuck out of my life. Uh, amazing. Cool. So, so see. Maybe we should finish answering yeah, this question. Know, like, Speaking what, of. what were they talking about again? Um, anyways, so answer choice C is got it's got to be the answer. So answer choice D, envision, envisage. Why can't I say this freaking word? I really have a problem. Say vision. Envi- vision say vision. Envision. Envision. Okay. Envisaging. I can't say it. I like seriously. Like, envisaging. Envisaging. Yeah. See, I have to hear you, you it. You can sound it as out. As soon as I hear it, I love it. Envisaging. N. Viz, uh, jing. I know. See, this is Invisiging. this is my problem, Nathan. This is my problem. I can't sound things out. I try to sound things out, and then like my my brain just goes to like, okay, how did it? How did you hear it? What what did it sound like? So if I've yeah, as soon as I said Litsina, then you went Litsina, no problem. Mm-hmm. But envisaging, you've had a hard time yeah, coming back. To it. it is a kind of you could make a tongue twister that had that word in it for sure. Yeah, I got serious problems, but um, envisaging. Okay. Radically new technologies rather than radically new social arrangements is a shortcoming of futuristic science fiction. Okay, neither of them talk, talked about this. So I would say it's it's not a shortcoming. No one discussed it. It's out. I mean, Priscilla did say they're better at the technologies than at the social arrangements. But, you know, even if, even if Priscilla... Wait, did I say Lucina? I meant Priscilla mm-hmm, if I mm-hmm, misspoke. Mm-hmm. Priscilla did say that they're better at the tech than they are at the social arrangements. But she actually didn't say that they do the tech and they don't do the social yeah, arrangements. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Which is what mm-hmm. D's describing. Yeah. Like it doesn't So we even can't happen. even put Priscilla on a yes for D. Yeah. And Lucina just didn't really even talk about envisaging radically new technologies. She didn't say that word at all. How could we possibly put her on a yes or a no for D? Yeah. Well, that in okay. some ways that makes these answers easier to get rid of, right? Like if if one person didn't talk about something, then you can just ignore the other person because who cares? The LSAT's easy. Yeah. The LSAT generally is easy. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you're not going to be good at the LSAT unless you accept that reality. Mm-hmm. For people who are good at the LSAT, the LSAT is easy. If you want to be good at the LSAT, you need to you need to buy into the idea that the LSAT is actually easy. And these answers, they're not just wrong one way. They're wrong like five different ways. The wrong answers can be dismissed on a variety of different grounds. Mm-hmm. But yeah, on an agree-disagree question, 
if I can't put both speakers explicitly on a position on that statement, based on their statement, they have to have clearly said yes. And the other one has to clearly have said no. So a, a foundational thing is they at least both have to have expressed a position on that. Yeah. Otherwise it's wrong before you even, you know, like Lucina didn't talk about technologies. That ain't the answer. I don't care what Priscilla said. Okay. So D's out. E, criticism of current social arrangements is not effective when those arrangements are contrasted with radically different ones. <laughs> um, Who's doing that? I mean, Lucina says that futuristic sci-fi writers are envisaging radically new social arrangements, but she does not say that they are contrasting those social arrangements with current social arrangements. Well, actually they're not even criticizing current social arrangements necessarily. No, they're just telling a story that happens to have radically new social arrangements, which may end up being a richer source of social criticism. But also we have this problem of not effective. Like that's extraordinarily strong, right? All we're saying, all that Lucina was saying is that it's a richer source. So I'm not saying that's the key to getting rid of this answer choice, but it's yet another problem. I just don't see Priscilla taking a position on that either. Priscilla said, hey, sci-fi writers aren't very good at envisaging these radically new social arrangements. But she didn't really take any position on whether criticism of current social arrangements is or is not effective Mm -hmm. when you contrast it with radically different social arrangements. I mean, you just it's an evidence based test. That's why it's so easy. Yeah. I mean, all the wrong answers here are garbage. Seize the correct answer because Lucina said it explicitly in her conclusion. And Priscilla, in her conclusion, said the most effective social criticism results from conventional fiction. Which is the opposite of that. So Lucina says yes to see. Priscilla says no to see. And that's easily our answer. All right. Cool. I'm envisaging something. I just had to say that word one more time. Thanks. I just wanted to look at the demon to see what kind of explanations we've got. Oh yeah. We've got a recent video from me doing that exact question. We've also got a full written explanation just right there in the demon. And in 2.0, you're going to have the ability to upvote and downvote, uh, including this explanation will make it into the demon. Uh, the one we did together. <laughs> probably going to get a lot of downvotes. I think so. Everybody's like just say like 30 what, minutes long. What? I just wasted two hours of my life on what? <laughs> It'll be interesting to see. If you made it this far, up please upvote right now. We need your support. <laughs> okay. Beautiful. Let's uh, move along, huh? Yeah, let's do it. So I guess we're on to mailbag, which. Yeah, we got tons of stuff in the mailbag. So let's just try to maybe do this rapid fire. Yeah. You got to go soon, right? So why don't you take the first one? Sure. Hi, Ben and Nathan. As I'm sure you're aware, the U.S. News recently announced that they will be changing their methodology for law school rankings to include graduate debt. Oh, um, cool. Okay, I didn't know that, actually. I was wondering... I what... hadn't known that until until this email came in. Um, so thank you, F. And by the way, if you want to share news like this with us and get it on the show, please email help at thinkinglsat.com or find us on social at thinking LSAT. We really appreciate it. I mean, we get our information from you, so hmm. please let us know. 
Yeah, that's actually but fasc- anyway. fascinating. So they're going to include the amount of debt that the graduates from that law school are carrying on average. I can't imagine it's going to make a significant change if you read further. Okay. I was wondering what your thoughts are on this. Uh, none so far. The new graduate debt component has been assigned a 5% weight. <laughs> Do you think that this forces law schools to decide between either receiving a slightly lower ranking or giving more scholarships to those in financial need in the next admissions cycle? Uh, I, I highly doubt that, actually. Um, money talks, right? This is all about making money. So you can't <laughs> mistake the goal for the... Uh, for the means to that goal? Or will schools begin to do things like recruit wealthier students and limit transfers? Here's a link to an article about it on Above the Law if you need it. I skimmed the article. Yeah. What we have is a whole bunch of, you know, commentators and consultants, et cetera, who are, you know, they they rush for the scoop. Mm Mm-hmm including some of, I saw our competitors talking about it you know, right, right away when this news was announced, I saw mm. our competitors making these, you know, bold proclamations about this. How big of a change can this possibly be? It's 5% of the, of the rankings. I don't think very much, but also keep in mind, even if they're right, how does that change your behavior? If you're an applicant, are you going to do anything differently? <laughs> yeah. Go for the highest LSAT score you can get. <laughs> right. And apply early and apply broadly and negotiate and get yourself the best deal you can get. I, I can't imagine. I mean, they're not going to lower. Hey, one thing you could do is you could lower your tuition and then that would help you on this 5% weighting in US News. Yeah. You would also then go bankrupt because you don't have enough revenue to support your half a million dollar salaries that your professors and deans are making. You don't have enough money to support the new 14 floor building that you built in the middle of the tenderloin. Yeah. So, you know, that's no, they're not going to, they're not going to lower tuitions. They're not going to really be giving significantly more scholarships than they already were. They're giving scholarships to attract the best LSAT and GPAs. And even if that's like slow, like slightly lower in the new U.S. news methodology. And yeah, there might be like some slight reshuffling of the, the very bottom of the top 14 or something. Who gives a shit? It doesn't make any like actual practical difference in the world. I don't think. No, I don't see how it would change anything. I would still just try to go to law school for free. And you do that by getting the best LSAT score you can get or by not going. Yep. So it seems like, thank you for sending this in F. I, I just don't think that it's really actionable information for anybody. Yep. Okay. Let's get to Will's email. Hello. I just listened to an episode where you mentioned that you want to hear about reversed LSAC fee waiver denials. So here goes. I was a bartender in LA up until COVID. I applied for LSAC's fee waiver about a month ago. I submitted bank statements. I told them I was on unemployment insurance. I was denied based solely on the amount in my checking account. It was an automatic denial, so there must be a specific threshold that they expect people who are poor to stay under. We've heard this before, that if you show them a bank statement that has too much cash in it, they're just going to immediately auto-deny you. For the appeal, I submitted a screenshot of my rent owed and a letter explaining why I should get the waiver, which mentioned why I had the extra money to begin with, which was I received overpayment from Colorado unemployment that needs paying back. I'm now on California unemployment. 
No overlap, nothing illegal happening, just twice the bureaucratic nightmare. I got an email back from LSAC with a list of things they required for the appeal. They needed a cover letter, which seems insane to me. I gave them as many documents as I could find that might even tangentially contribute to the decision. I probably put about 16 attachments on a single email. I added screen share videos of me logging into and navigating my Utah unemployment account. Oh, wait, no, UI account. Wait, that's not Utah because he was talking about Colorado. My UI account? Hmm. Unemployment insurance account. Hmm. Okay. Must be the California. Anyway, all the documents I had previously submitted and the cover letter. After that, it was a two or three day turnaround before I got the letter sustaining my appeal. My advice is to use the phone number and email provided if you have questions and you should use any bit of evidence you think of that might possibly help you out. I figure LSAC appreciates candidates that look like future lawyers. So a well-written letter and cover letter and a pile of evidence might make them lean toward accepting your argument. An appeal denial is final, so make sure you leave nothing out. Best of luck, Will. So I have mixed feelings about Will's advice. I do think that you want to show uh, (laughs) the evidence so that they have something to base their conclusion on. Um, But I'm concerned if people just start throwing tons of evidence in there, you could actually end up throwing in stuff that will hurt you, right? Like, oh, well, you only have five grand in this account, but you have four accounts and the sum of that is 20 grand. So what are you doing applying for a fee waiver? I don't, yeah, I don't know, but... I tend to agree with that. I I would, I mean, I would put evidence if you think it's actually evidence in your favor, but I would be real careful about just putting 16 attachments on an email. I mean, you're, some of your evidence is going to be much more compelling than the other evidence. Mm-hmm. You don't want to hide it. It is. Bury it. Exactly. You don't want to bury the evidence that's really going to help you in a mountain of other evidence that's irrelevant. So uh, be careful. It is nice to hear though, that there's an appeal process and that apparently uh, will made it through again. The LSAC fee waiver is worth like a couple thousand bucks. Um, you get to take the LSAT free twice. You get the credential assembly service for free. You get a whole bunch of reports for free. Hardly any law school will ever charge you an application fee. If you get the fee waiver and you get a discount on LSAT demon, um, if you qualify for the LSAC fee waiver. So it's worth a lot and everybody really should apply for it. And if you get it, awesome. I mean, it's going to save you a ton of cash. And if they deny you on the first try, there's always the appeal. You want to take uh, Michael's email? Sounds like you got time. Good. Yeah. Greetings. I enjoy listening to your podcast. I appreciate how you defang the LSAT process. Defang. You remove its fear and provide hope. Oh, that's nice to hear. I'm in my mid-50s and... Interestingly, in atten- oh, and interested in attending law school, my desire is to practice criminal law in a smaller, more personal setting, like a public defender. Let me provide some background context for the advice I seek. Okay, uh, in 2016, I resigned from decades-long military service. It was just time for a change. I presently work full-time in corporate loss prevention. It's a non-demanding job that pays the bills and allows me to focus on school. I have college degrees, but from unaccredited Bible schools. Okay. Using military veterans' benefits, I have since received an accredited associate's degree in criminal justice and a paralegal certificate. I will complete a bachelor's program by the summer of 2022. Since I'm running against the biological clock, how would you advise me to pursue my goal? Okay. First, Uh, I won't go into debt to attend law school. 
but I wonder, will my age prevent me from being offered a scholarship? And are scholarships offered for part-time law school students? I would only apply to regional schools nearby, such as UConn and Quinnipiac. Um, okay. Thoughts on all those questions so far? I can't imagine them not giving you a scholarship because you're older. I'm not sure that that they do offer scholarships to older people, but I don't see what your age has to do with it. They give you a scholarship because of your LSAT and GPA. Yeah, they want to boost their reputation. They want to boost their numbers on their public reports, on their 509 reports. So I don't think age is part of their calculus. If somebody has information otherwise, email us help at thinkinglsat.com. I'd love to hear about it, but I don't I can't imagine that they're actually thinking about that. They're they're trying to poach you from a rival school. That's why they're going to offer you a scholarship. Your numbers are higher than their numbers. They're going to give you money. Yeah. Um really quick. Sorry, just to, yeah. to make this conceptually clear for everyone. You are selling your numbers to the school for money right. in terms of discounts. Right. Absolutely. Um, and age has nothing to do with that. As far as whether scholarships are offered for part-time law students, you need to look at the 509s, dude. That depends uh, on the school. Yeah. So look up UConn ABA 509. Look up Quinnipiac ABA 509. It should show you how many applicants they got, how many people they admitted, uh, what their LSAT and GPA ranges were, and what the scholarships were for the part-time students. So um, I don't I think you can just look that up. It's a matter of public record. Yeah. Second, is it advisable to begin preparing for the LSAT while st still working on the bachelor's degree? I certainly see the wisdom of 100% focus on the bachelor's, then upon graduation, switching the focus to the LSAT. But I am listening to your podcast and eager to start the free demon. Um, okay. I, honestly, this is going to depend on your situation. If your grades aren't great, then you might need to focus on your grades. Even then, I don't see why you couldn't do a little bit of LSAT studying instead of Netflix, for example. But if your grades are all under control, then yeah, I would get started. People do it all the time. People start when they're juniors, uh, seniors, whatever. I think you have to if you want to start law school in the fall of 2022. That's true, too. Given your timeline, I mean, and you're concerned about says your biological he's graduating clock. <laughs> in summer 2022, worried about the biological clock. Your, your applications probably, Michael, need to be in this fall, which means you need the LSAT done before then, hmm. which, you know, maybe part time programs. Sometimes you can get away with applying later, but probably not if you're if you're trying to get a scholarship. So, Michael, I don't think it's too early at all. Uh, if you want to start law school in 2023 or maybe like a, you know, it could be even a, like a spring start in 2023. Cause they do that sometimes in part-time programs. If that's the case, then maybe you've got a little bit more time, but if you want to start law school in the fall of 2022, uh, you are late actually. I mean, it's your time to start prepping was yesterday. So you know, you got to get your degree. You got to keep your grades up for sure. But your LSAT is going to be the big, the thing that really moves the needle on your scholarship. So lastly, what concerns do you have about someone at my age going through the entire law school process? Well, it sounds like you're not going to pay for law school, so I'm not as concerned. But if you were paying anything and you are going to be paying time, uh, I just hope that you can get out of it what you want, um, that it can pay you back for what you're trying to get out of it. That's, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't have any concerns about someone of a particular age going to law school. I just have general concerns about anybody going to law school, no matter what their age. Mm -hmm. 
Like you got to have a burning desire to practice law. You, you've got to know what lawyers do and you've got to be like certain that that's what you want to do every day for the rest of your life. Yep. And if not, then you shouldn't go. I don't care if you're 22 or 52. It doesn't make any difference. Yep. Hey, let's wrap it up. I'm late for my sure. other meeting. Yep. Uh, if you have questions, email the show at help at thinkinglsat.com. If you want to learn about the LSAT demon, email help at lsatdemon.com. That was episode 290 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.